in. The interesting thing is, you know, God had, had um, pre-warned me, and I just kind of knew this was going to happen. So he'd also, um, remember I said two weeks ago when I was preaching about our bicultural journey that I reread a message I gave on the treaty, and at the end of that time I just sat there stunned, and I thought to myself, I really needed to reread that. You know, it just slips from our mind and our consciousness. And I really felt God um, prompted me at that point that I'd need at some stage to re-preach this message. So I never thought it would be in two weeks' time. But that's what I exactly want to do this morning. You know, many people in New Zealand today would downplay our history as being a Christian history. But our, our history of two peoples coming together the Māori already being here, and, and European, mostly English in the beginning, um, settlers beginning to come here and leading to the treaty signing, is, is totally Christian. To- Jesus Christ, through the missionaries, is totally involved in the, in the forming of this uh, partnership that the treaty actually represents. But many people, including many Māori, would downplay um, that as being actually that it happened or that it was significant, it's just something, it's a by, by something on the side, whereas actually it's in the very, very centre. And many historians today would see Henry Williams not as a great man of God that turned a mission to New Zealand from a very unfruitful Um, exercise into an amazing exercise that actually led to complete revival taking place within the Maori people of our nation. And they would say that he was duplicious, that he appeared to be doing one thing, but actually behind the scenes he was setting New Zealand up for the taking of land from the Maori people. That he knew he was just a, a, a tool of colonialism and he knew that this was going to happen. In fact, he was actually trying to make it happen. And, uh, and in the signing of the treaty, it was, an, it was behind the scenes a way of being able to take the land off the Maori people. That's a very common view in academia in New Zealand today because of some books that were, or a particular book that was written in the 70s, that he deliberately tricked the Maori into signing and was actually an agent of colonialism. A lot of Napui would feel that way. The Maori from the north. But you know, there's nothing in his life that backs that theory up. There's nothing in the life of, of Henry Williams that backs that theory up. His life was a life of integrity, a life of immense courage and honesty. His courage was such that he would walk into battles, into warfare, into tribal warfare, and call for peace in the middle of a battle with bullets, musket bullets going. He has a, had a reputation of walking in and breaking up tribal fights and calling for peace in the name of Jesus Christ. He would do the same things with two warriors fighting each other. He would think nothing of, of getting in the middle and separating them out and calling for peace rather than for them to continue to fight. One, one uh, Claudia, I think it was Claudia Orange in her book uh, in the 80s, um, she said, Henry Williams wasn't like your normal wimpy missionary, if you've got a picture of what that might look like. 
He was more like Indiana Jones, striding through, having an adventure. And, and because Henry Williams left home at 14, joined the British Navy and, and fought through the Napoleonic Wars. So he was a man well used to having people killed all around him and seeing the effects of that. And so he was an absolute man's man who came to Christ and then came to New Zealand as a 23-year-old and headed up the mission and changed it from something that had seen very few converts to a, a mission in New Zealand that saw thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people saved. And he would have led many, many Maori people to Christ in his own days. There are stories of him standing before, unflinchingly, before a Maori warrior with Taiaha raised, ready to kill him, and Henry just staring them down and the Taiaha being lowered, and him talking to them about the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He was, he was an absolute warrior for Jesus Christ. You know, he is possibly one of the great Christians when, when we get to heaven and we see the effects of Christians in our land who have made an incredible difference. He will be in the top tier of leaders in our land. And he spent his life... Um, ministering to Māori till his death in 1867. And he was vocally an ally of the Māori people protesting to Britain and protesting to the New Zealand government at the failure to be able to um, care for and honour the treaty and what it said to Māori people after it was signed. And Governor Gray, the one when I was at school I heard of as good Governor Gray, in 1848-49, set out to destroy Henry Williams because Henry had so much influence with the, the settlers as well as because, and certainly with the Maoris as he spoke for Maori, Maori interests. And Gray wrote to the Anglican Church unjustly without ever first talking to Williams at all and he accused him of financially taking advantage of the Maori for his own purchase of land. And it proved to be totally unjust. He paid more than was necessary for the 11,000 acres for his children who, to, to set them up in, into New Zealand. And, and yet Gray's letter had the effect that the Anglican Church fired Henry Williams from his role as the head of the CMS here in New Zealand. And so missionaries from here had to travel to England and plead his case. And five years later, they reinstated him but he was a man who knew what it was to fight for Jesus. I mean, Jesus never promises us that we won't have persecution, that our reputations won't be totally tarnished. We're just to fight for Jesus and live for Jesus. True? And that's what happened for Henry Williams. He was vindicated in the end. And it's really rich when good Governor Gray was the one who pushed Maori tribes for war, the, the Great South Road was built so that he could get troops to the Waikato to take on the Waikato tribes. And then what, if the Maori um, fought against the, the uh, troops, when the war was, uh, battles were finished, he, he confiscated millions of acres of New Zealand from the Maori for fighting against him, and yet pushed for that to take place in Taranaki and in Waikato as well. Henry Williams was deeply honoured by Māori people in his day. Deeply, deeply, deeply honoured. 
There is no record of any account of Maori rising up to, to criticize Henry Williams from his day. He's the only European, only Pākehā, who, is, who has been, um, his, his life and legacy has been carried on because his, a, a, a carving of him has been carved into the meeting house of any meeting house around New Zealand. But Henry Williams, Karofa, Four Eyes, is uh, in, in the doorway uh, going into the Waitangi um, meeting house that's there. So it's important that we know more and more and more and claim back our Christian heritage for the, for the founding of, of the two peoples and then multicultural within New Zealand. We have to know the stories. And I want to say again that justice is really important to God. Have a listen to this scripture, um, Matthew chapter 12. Um, and it's, it's one spoken of Jesus. Look at my servant, and this isn't from Isaiah, but it's spoken of in the New Testament. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. And that was the ministry that Jesus had. It is also, as well as salvation, it is to establish justice within the nations of the world. And look what Jesus said in, in, in uh, Matthew 23 to the religious leaders of his day. He said, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the important aspects of the law, things like justice and mercy and faith. Yes, you should tithe, he said. Can I just do an aside? <laughs> yes, you should tithe, he said. It's the way to release finance, both for his kingdom and for you. But he says, you guys, don't do, just do the religious stuff. Care about justice in the land. This is what he was saying to the religious leaders. It applies to Christians and leadership in the church today as much as it did then. Justice matters in the land. What we should be about is, yes, making sure the kingdom and the church is, is able to continue to do its thing. But as Christians, we, be, we should be concerned about injustice. And we should be standing for justice, whether it's in a work situation or whether it's nationally in our country. Is that good? So we've got, a, we've got something to do. We can't just be wimpy Christians. It's not the day to be wimpy Christians. It's the day to fight for justice. Because injustice hurts people. They end up going to see Jenny. And she can't sort everyone out, but we still send everyone we possibly can to you, Jenny. But all of us should be concerned about justice. Now, I just have to say this again. We didn't cause any of the injustices that have happened previous to our being born. So we're not guilty for those things. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have something to do with seeing those injustices sorted out. And yes, there are injustice, Maori to Maori. There was such utu, such intertribal fighting that went on year after year after year. It was the pattern in Maori society, just as it was in Fijian society. And there was cannibalism, and there was all sorts of things that would just keep it going every year. 
But God will speak to the Maori people about the injustices in their own history. It doesn't give those of us who, who are European or come from another uh, culture to New Zealand and are, are now all New Zealanders here the right to say, well, I don't... They, they did bad things, so us doing bad things or my ancestors doing bad things doesn't matter. No, it does. Injustice at every level needs to be sorted through. And the treaty is a real stake in the ground of the aspirations of what is God's intent for how two peoples could live together in great respect and great admiration and be stronger because we do. Not stronger when we try to make one people become like the other. There were three parties to the treaty. There were Maori and the Crown, and there were missionaries. And there would have been no treaty guaranteeing Maori equal rights and protection as British citizens and the exclusive and undeserved possession of their lands for as long as they desired. If it weren't for in the providence of God, Lord Glenelg and James Stevenson, who, who were Christian reformers in their day, being the colonial secretary and the undersecretary for the colonies. And these guys were in such positions of influence, they were able to say the treaty must be written in this way so that we don't have what has happened in other countries where the people just have their land completely taken off them in a land grab, colonialism. And you know, these two were... Um, Sons and daughters, they were the next generation of what's called the Clapham sect. And you've probably heard that word, but the Clapham sect just meant a group of Christian people who were socially conscious as well as evangelical. They wanted people to come to Christ, but they also wanted for many things with social uh, influence to take place. Um, these two were sons of them. William Wilberforce was one of the Clapham um, sect, and he, he was able to get through Parliament the... I, I think you got it right. <laughs> and he spent his lifetime until finally he got it through Parliament and slavery was abolished in the British Empire and it spread and it became abolished. The sad thing is that it still exists today. And these guys in the Clapham sect, who just went to a church in Clapham, had, had links right back to Wesley, John and Charles Wesley. And so there's a great theme that comes down to New Zealand of the work of God seeking to bring equality between races. And the treaty enshrines equality as races under the law. But the sad part is that Maori never became equal. And within just a few years, Maori were being treated unjustly. Colonialism, the land grab, was unleashed. And the aspirations of the missionaries... Henry Williams wasn't setting all this up going, great, we're getting rid of the, the indigenous people and all the land's being taken over. He was tearing his hair out, trying to stop what the treaty said should never happen. The land grab. And interestingly, we saw that this was actually prophesied, that the Maori people would remain oppressed within their own land, even before Maori came. Captain Cook came um, in 1769, but the Maori have an oral tradition, of uh, oral history, that in 1766, 
Toiroa, from, from way down in Gisborne Way, prophesied, and he spoke these words. He said, the name of their God, of this people that are coming to New Zealand, will be the son who is killed. You can't get much more specific than that, is it? That's Jesus. A good God, and yet the people, the tongue of Fenua, will still be oppressed. They have been oppressed by the works of darkness, especially Utu and cannibalism uh, that, was, that was taking place within our land. And even when they were spiritually free, Maori people have still, as a body, as a people, been oppressed. And tragically, history bears this out to a degree, even today. Now, I'm not talking about individuals, because there are many Maori people who, who have done extremely well, and, and they, they don't have any sense of oppression over them. But as a people, we know the statistics in New Zealand today, in our prisons, in our health statistics, in the crime situations, the Maori people are well overrepresented. Why would this be? Did you notice in the, in the video clip that I played two weeks ago of one of the presidents of the mongrel mob and his testimony, he said, when I was eight years old, I think it was, he said, I stole a bike from school from behind the bike sheds and I took it away. And so the state took me out of my family and put me into foster care. Wow. Now let's just say that was a white child who had stolen a bike from school, what sort of punishment would be given out to a child like that? I read an article last year that shocked me because I guess we'd all be familiar with the, um, in Australia, what they call the stolen generation, where there was a generation of kids that were deliberately by the government um, taken from their homes for various causes, but quite small causes, and they are called the Stolen Generation. But New Zealand has a similar history in the 50s and 60s. And there's an estimate that there could be up to 50,000 children were taken for very small cause out of their family. And Roy Dunn said he was told, if, if once he'd got through the fostering, and he didn't say how many homes he, he was sent to to try and take him through to that age. But you know when you turn 15 or 16, you're out. You no longer have a whanau relationship to stabilize you, to help you, to give you the norms of what is right. So what do you do? You find the nearest gang, or you form the nearest gang. And it's exactly what happened in Roy's situation. So what was it that brought Maori to the treaty? It was a convergence of a lot of things, and I'll just go quickly through these. Muskets changed the intertribal warfare forever. You know, Maori had a pattern of intertribal warfare. It had gone on every spring. It was time for war. But it was mostly hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and people were killed, but not in massive numbers, until muskets were brought to New Zealand by the Europeans. And Hongi Hika has the infamy of being the chief from the north who... who um, decided he would get as many muskets as he could and take on every other tribe for any Utu that they had owed him. And he decimated the north, 
right through uh, the islands, but he wasn't the only one, but he was very cunning. He actually went to England, met with King George IV, and King George IV, uh, Hong, Hongi was obviously a, a very charismatic uh, person, I mean that just in the sense of personality, not spiritual gifts, but, but a very charismatic person, and he, he got on the King George's favour, and King George gave him lots of gifts, um, which Hongi, before he got back on the ship, traded off while still in England, got all the money and bought muskets and shipped those muskets back. But the one gift that they say he didn't sell off was a, a, a suite of, uh, sorry, a suit of, um, of armor. He got back home with all these muskets and the armor, and he was able to walk into battles virtually untouchable. Ping, ping, ping. And it wasn't just him. Te Whararoa in, in, uh, in the Waikato was, was dealing with muskets and, and uh, Utu as well. Uh, Te Rapraha down on, on the Kapiti Coast, uh, the bottom of the North Island, came down to, to the Naitahu here in Christchurch and just decimated Naitahu in the two pars. Uh, and you'll probably know the stories of, of what he did there. Um, and so there were big people shifts of people all, all within, within the Maori people, all within New Zealand, pushed out of their, their land that they'd been on for centuries, but, but they, they estimate that about a quarter of all Maori people were killed um, in these musket wars that started in the 1920s. So Maori were ready for something, they were ready for peace, and that's what began to happen. And, and revival came... To, um, began to happen amongst the Maori people because Henry Williams and the other missionaries right up in the north, in, in the Bay of Islands, were continually speaking to the children. They, they, they had schools. A printing press came with Colenso and they began to not only, they began to write the Maori language and then they began to print it and they began to teach Maori how to do that and the Maori were, were able to read the Bible for themselves. And, and, and slowly, Napui began to say, because they'd been reading the Bible, it's not right that we have slaves. And they began to let them go. And slaves began to, to go home, to walk the length of New Zealand home to wherever their tribal land was. And one of the really interesting stories is Tarori's story. And I want to remind you of her story because it's one that we, we, we should know. It, it's so helpful. In 1835, Alfred and Charlotte Brown came to live in the Waikato uh, in a Waikato Maori village. And one of the early converts for um, Alfred Brown was Chief Nakuku. Can you say Nakuku? Excellent. And, and he'd been given the gospel, a tract of the gospel, just a portion of it in Luke, in Maori. And he, he let his daughter wear it as a, uh, a treasure around her, on a necklace, flax necklace around her neck. And, and, and one night, um, Maori from another tribe came and there was... Fighting, So a small group of them, including Nakuku and his daughter, um, escaped, and they went to Wairere Falls in the Kaimai Ranges. And that night, um, the Maori from Rotorua came and attacked them there, and sadly, Ta Tarori was killed, and the Luke's gospel was ripped from her neck and taken away. And Nakuku returned from his village, and he buried his daughter, and at her tangi, he, he stunned everybody by pronouncing forgiveness upon her daughter's, his daughter's killer. And he said, he said, there lies my child, and she's dead because you, all the you two, you guys keep getting up to with the other tribes. And he said, this is it. This is the end. He said, um, 
do not rise up to obtain more utu against the, the people and the tribe that have done this. God will look after that. Let this be the conclusion of the war with Rotorua. Let peace now be made. And that would have stunned everybody. And as that story, he, see, he was only days after his daughter's been killed, and he pronounces forgiveness upon the person who did it, and he says, no reprisal at all. Now, that would have stunned Mauridom. That story would have just been shared everywhere. But the, the, the story continues, because the man who killed her was Uita. And when Uita returned to his village, he met a slave who was walking back to where he belonged, back on, uh, down by Tirabraha's land, by the name of Ripahau. And Ripahau was walking back, and he could read. The, he could read. And so Uita has this gospel of Luke, and he says, can you read me this gospel? And Ripahau reads him the gospel of Luke, and I don't know whether it took weeks or whether it took days, but he's so impacted by the gospel of Luke, he, becomes, he gives his life to Jesus. And then he says, I can't just give my life to Jesus. I've got to go and reconcile, even if it costs me my life, with the father of the daughter that I have killed, that I got this Bible from. So he goes over to Nakuku. He finds Nakuku. And you imagine how brave that is. It's one thing for Nakuku at the Tangi to say, I forgive, but now the man comes to seek him out and he has another chance to go against the, the gospel and to, to, to let the old nature rise up within him and to take a taiha and just slay him. But he doesn't. The two men powerfully reconcile. And, and you know, our history is that out of those two events, a love for peace just ripped out, just waved out, just, just spread across Mauridom as they heard what had actually taken place. And then Ripahau, he keeps walking down. It's a long walk, isn't it? Down to Otaki. He's in, Rotorua, in the Waikato area. Now he's walking all the way back home. And he gets down there. And a, little, a number of months later, who should turn up but warriors from Rotorua? And they have a book. And it's, got, it's the Gospel of Luke, and it's got Nakuku's name in it. So Ripahau gets this Gospel of Luke for the second time. And he starts talking to, reading it to his tribe. And, and his tribe is Tirapraha's tribe. And, and Iwi, at least. And, and Tirapraha's son, Tamihana Tirapraha, and his cousin, Matani Tefifi, both give their lives to Jesus. And they say, we've got to get a missionary ourselves. And so they, they head off up to Henry Williams up in the north, and they ask for a missionary. And missionaries are in short supply in New Zealand at this stage. And, and there's, there's one guy there who, when you see pictures of him, um, Octavius Hadfield, he, he's just, he just looks not good. <laughs> you look at some of the pictures of these old missionaries, and, and he was in his 20s, but he, he had some sort of consumption, um, some sort of asthma, and he says, well, look, I can die in Otaki just as easy as I can die in the Bay of Islands. I would have preferred the Bay of Islands, but I can die down there, so I'll go with them. He gets down there, and when he gets there, the, the Tohonga pronounces a curse upon him, and, and the Maori are just watching to see what happens, because Usually within one or two days, he drops dead. But within one or two days, the tohunga dies. The mana of Octavius Hadfield just went up. Do you get that? 
<laughs> so Tamihana says, we've got to go and make reparation to Natahu in Christchurch for what my father has done. And apparently his father, Tirapaha, was really angry that, he, that his son took the gospel down there before he'd had chance to come down and do more casualty down here. And as, in Tamihana's own words, he writes, it wasn't long before the gospel was spread amongst all the Māori of Naitahu in Otatahi. Isn't that cool? There are wonderful stories of just how the gospel just waved out. There was revival across the land. So the people are ready for a treaty. The people are ready for something that will bring peace. And Māori were, were, um, uh, are a very entrepreneurial people by and large. They, they were, some of them were, were sending food to Sydney to feed the, the convict population over there. They were that good at what they do. Waikato was, was, was supplying food for Auckland, the Waikato Māori. They had, they had a great food basket and, and they knew how to make money <laughs> by selling it to the settlers. And literacy was breaking out, so change was happening all over our nation. And... Uh, the Maori were asking for British help against the worst excesses of the whalers and the sealers. You know, I read a book that said up, uh, up to around a thousand ships were coming to uh, Russell in, in, in a year's over a period of a year. That's a lot of whalers and sailors and, and bad stuff happening. And then came the arrival of the settlers under Edward Gibbard Wakefield. And as I said last two weeks ago, um, there was a real clash of worldviews of, of, of uh, joint ownership of land with the European idea of my, my, my amount and, and ownership of that. And, and within just um, months, 20 million acres were signed away from Wellington all the way up to New Plymouth. And then within just a few more months, almost all of the South Island, 300 million acres was signed to William Wakefield. And the English government, they sent a, a, um, a, a land a commissioner, someone who would come out from the government and find out whether what the New Zealand company were doing was legal and just. And a guy called William Spain came out here and he says, it's, they've stolen the land. This is all unjust, or basically mostly unjust. Please, I, I'm not saying all. Mostly unjust. But he... He had a very weak response, and he said, well, what can we do? Settlers are already living in Wellington, and they're you know, living in the top of the North, uh, South Island and places. So his, his thing wasn't to give the land back to the owners of, that it had been stolen from. It was to make the New Zealand company pay some more money for what they had taken. So unfortunately, the treaty was never, on, uh, uh, never honoured. So how did Maori, pe Maori people um, view the treaty? Well, they viewed it in the same way that God does. It's always been seen as a covenant between the Maori people, the government of England, and then transferred to New Zealand, and the missionaries. It's always been seen as a covenant. And they go back to the story in Joshua chapter 9 where Joshua made a treaty with the Gibeonites. And Joshua, if you remember, got tricked into making a treaty with the Gibeonites who lived very close to where they were next going to be, but they pretended that they lived so far away they were right outside of Palestine or Israel. 
And once I'd made the treaty, the Gibeon, the, 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 their own peoples attacked the Gibeonites who had made the treaty, and Joshua sent his troops, the Israelites, to fight on behalf of the Gibeonites. That's how strongly he protected them. And then 400 years later, now we're just over 200 years later since this treaty was signed, 1840, is that right? You work the maths out. We're less than 400 years since that treaty took place. But David and Saul were 400 years after the treaty with the Gibeonites had been signed. And it says this, There was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So David asked the Lord about it, and the Lord said, The famine has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murdering the Gibeonites. They were basically trying for genocide. So the king summoned the Gibeonites, and the people of Israel had sworn not to kill them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to wipe them out. And David asked them, What can I do for you? How can I make amends to you so that you will bless the Lord's people again? What can I do then? David asked. Just tell me and I will do it for you. And they replied, it was Saul who planned to destroy us and to keep us from having a place at all in the territory of Israel. So let seven of Saul's sons be handed over to us and we will execute them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. All right, King David said, I'll do it. And the men of Gibeon executed them on the mountain before the Lord. So all seven of them died together at the beginning of the barley harvest. And after that, God ended the famine in the land. It's an amazing story of how if a treaty was broken, God would bring consequences upon his own people And upon that land, because of what had taken place. And as I said last time, I'll just whiz through these things. We can learn these things from it. No covenant is perfect. This one was formed um, due to trickery, and yet God honored it, because it was a covenant. Just like the covenant that a husband and a wife make to each other in marriage. It's not a commitment. It's more than a commitment. It's a covenant. God looks to see that covenants are kept. Secondly, God takes covenants really seriously because the people are given their word. Thirdly, a dishonoring a covenant can bring a curse. Negative stuff can happen in a country till a treaty is honored. And then fourthly, justice needs to be done. Restitution is the biblical way of healing a nation. The people who've been treated unjustly need to be asked, what can we do to make amends? Now, the government, our government, the New Zealand government, hasn't done that to the Maori people. They haven't actually fronted up and said, what can we do to make amends? To my knowledge, that has not been done. What the government has done is they have acknowledged that terrible atrocities have taken place in this era called colonisation, And they've sought to make an amends through the Waitangi Tribunal, but they said, we'll only make amends up to a billion dollars. And we're now past a billion dollars that have been given. And a billion dollars sounds like an awful lot of money, but 25-26 of New Zealand is worth a little bit more than a billion dollars. 
Sixthly, and this is a really important point, restitution should be proportional and should be reasonable. Saul was trying to wipe out the Gibeonites. Let's assume hundreds and hundreds were killed. And the Gibeonites say, if you give us seven of Saul's sons, now let's assume also that Saul's sons were some of the ones who were making the calls as to how this would happen and the need for it. Just give us seven people, we'll execute them, and we'll consider that restitution. So restitution should be proportional and reasonable. It's not right to create another injustice to solve an old one. And the last thing here is that the injured party must be patient and not take matters into their own hands with violence. And how amazing it is that for 178 years, here we go, it's not 200, it's 178 years, Maori have basically been gracious and they've honoured the crown and they've forgiven Pākehā, although they do tell the stories. They know what has happened in their, in their stories. When, when last time I preached this, Nairi was sitting down here and I went to her afterwards and uh, just to say hello and, and to greet her. And a Maori woman who I hadn't noticed was in the service came down the front. And so I said hello to her as well. And she said, oh, we know Octavius Hatfield. She said, my iwi is Te Rapraha's area there. She said, we, we know all the stories of what has taken place. Their ancestors, the ancestors of the Maori people today, chose the way of peace, and they've not gone back on that. Because what the ancestors have said and set, looking into the, uh, walking backwards into the future, looking at the agreement that was made back then, is the way that it's honored today. Now, I know there are extremes, I'm just talking about the middle ground. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So what can we do as Christians as we think this? Well, I think we need to understand it more. And I think that's why Nairi's um, trapped in fog and her plane was delayed for uh, two days in a row so that we can just learn more, remind ourselves again, this is our history for us as a nation as well. And I think the effect will be that we say, God, thank you. That, that Christianity is, is the founding thing of our two races together. It's a wonderful history, and there are many, many amazing stories. But I think we will have a softened heart towards the Maori people for many of the injustices that they have had. And injustice is still happening today. I met a lovely Maori woman by the name of Pania in 2017. I was on a marae uh, with the other leaders of the Baptist Union um, in Manukau. And she did the call, the waiata, to invite us on. And then partway through the few days we were together there, she came and told her story. And she said, look, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm, I think she's mid-twenties. She said, I, I finished my degree. I came back to home. And she said, um, I saw that all the land that the Manukau city had acknowledged was actually our land, Maori land, that had been put aside for us as a tribe, was now all sectioned off with pegs for houses. All this beautiful land on the shores of the Manukau. And she said, this was our land. And what had happened was, um, when five cities in Auckland became one city, 
all the paperwork that Manukau City had put together acknowledging that this was Maori land and belonged to them had been lost. <laughs> so she and her dad, they went in and pulled all the pegs out. Now, if you know the Parihaka story that happened in 17, uh, 1870, Nairi's not here to give me the right dates, but that sort of time frame, this is just a repeat. She said, we don't want the land for us and for houses. We want it joined to Stony Batter Park, which is already a, a recreational reserve for all of Aucklanders to be able to enjoy. We just want the land put there. But we don't want it sold off into million-dollar properties that will just be sold and sold and sold. She said, I've taken my story to the UN. And my dad and me, we live in a caravan there. And she showed us a picture of the caravan that they're living in in this kind of real rumpty thing on the land. And for about four years now, um, Fletchers have held off. The Auckland City Council have held off. The following day after she told us the story, she was on breakfast TV, again just telling the story. And, and something inside of me was just going, how can this be happening in New Zealand today that they're not being treated fairly? How does the paperwork from one city, when it merges, get lost? without someone going, or through the shredder. Someone did it. It's not right. It's unjust. And it's happening in places around about. And so we have a wonderful Christian heritage, and we also have a call to justice, not to be wimps, but to take stands. I was so impressed with Pania. She said, we don't want people, if this ever becomes a full-blown um, occupation, I thought, if they did that, I'm going to fly up there. And she said, we don't want people to come with anger and annoyance and everything. If, if we have people come, there's a code of conduct. And just this quiet lawyer voice, she just spoke about, kind of heart and the kind of attitude that she wants. And it was then she said, actually, we don't want the land so that we can build houses on it. We actually want it so it joins to the park that's already there and it's there for all generations forever to be able to enjoy these shores. Great Christian heritage, folks. But a call to justice too. And the justice in your situation might be in your work. It might be all sorts. And I'm not going to attempt to say what God might just place before you. But I think our hearts soften when we realize some of the things that have happened in our history. Yep. That if we could go back, we'd do it differently. But they have happened. Can the team come to um, lead us? stand with us. <laughs> 